We began a sermon series from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Today we find ourselves at the end of chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. If you'd turn there at this time. Unusual to my preaching style, I'm going to stay with my manuscript today. I have timed it, and if I walk away and start chasing rabbits, I'll, I'll never get finished. I also want to say today that I realize that not all of you will agree with me, and I certainly know that one Baptist doesn't ever su- suppose to speak for another. I'm going to read the text to you and interpret it the way that I see it. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures." Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And also in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned with a desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person to do penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceitful malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and merciful. And though they know the ordinance of God, that is, those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but they also give a hearty approval to those who practice them. Today we come to one of the most uncomfortable passages in Paul's letter to the church at the capital city of Rome, a message which deals with same-gender sexuality. I certainly will be careful in my selection of words, but the church cannot bury her head in the sand and let everyone else do the talking. We must surely bring some moral clarity to the midst of the confusion. The thesis statement in all the book of Romans is right here in our passage today in Romans 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news story of Jesus. For in the good news we find the power of salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, but also the Greek. 
For in it, verse 17, in the story of Jesus, we find the righteousness of God, which is revealed from faith to faith. This righteousness of God, this righteous God, we learn in verse 18, exercises wrath against unrighteousness. His very nature is that God is holy and all unrighteousness receives his wrath. The good news we'll find later as we go through Romans in chapter 3 is that the wrath of God is received by his son on Calvary. God gives his wrath to himself that we could be free from God's wrath if we believe in the story of Jesus. But before we get to the remedy of our unrighteousness, we must see how depraved we have become in this section of Romans. So in verse 18, he lets us know that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. At the center of this argument about the wrath of God being poured out on all ungodliness, he says that creation has fallen to such depths, verse 25, that men no longer worship the creator, but they are worshiping the creation. And creation has become so upside down, he says, that, well, men and women are ignoring their created boundaries of their bodies. They're doing unnatural things like men being, the little Greek is men being in men and women being with women. Unless we think that he's just pointing a finger at those who practice homosexuality, you need to know that he adds to his list of sinners in this passage, those who are arrogant, those who are boastful, those who are disobedient to their parents, those who are deceitful, and of course the Baptist sin of gossip is all included as he casts a net in verse 29. So at the end of the day, whatever our sin, we're all caught in the same net together. We are all, all of us are unrighteous people. Our culture has decided that same-gender sexuality must not only be accepted, but also blessed. Those who think or say otherwise are quickly depicted as being bigoted, hateful, narrow-minded, and dreadfully old-fashioned. We are told to be totally tolerant, make no critical or moral evaluations, and see acting upon a sexual orientation is no more than a genetic trait or a personal choice. I want to address in a straightforward fashion the eight major arguments I see put forth toward a new position of of blessing same-gender sexuality. The reality is, and I don't have time to look at it this morning, the reality is historically the church has always been against same-gender sexuality. This is, my position today is not a new position. It's a 2,000-year-old position starting here with the Apostle Paul. You see, if you were to read the early patriarchs, you will not find a single early patriarch that blesses homosexuality. If you were to delve into medieval theology, there's not a single medieval theologian who blesses homosexuality. If you were to look at the Reformed theologians, again, a unanimity, a voice, there is no objection. They all would condemn same-gender sexuality. So clearly, if we look at the church historically, the church speaks overwhelmingly against the acceptance of same-gender sexuality. So before we do an about face as a church, before we make the historic blunder of condoning sinful behavior, I want us to examine the reasons set forth by those who want the church to change its historic and long-lasting course. First of all, some people say, you know, the Bible really doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Well, on the contrary, 
You see it right here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. In fact, it's a quite clear rejection of same-gender sexuality lifestyles as an acceptative alternative to heterosexuality. Leading New Testament ethicist, ethicist Richard Hayes of Duke University, who rejects homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle, as well as United Church of Christ minister Gary Comstock, who accepts it, they both admit that Paul depicts homosexuality in Romans 1 as an example of turning away from God and turning away from God's boundaries. While homosexuality is only part of Paul's broader agenda, the Jewish agenda in the book of Rome, it, is, it plays the role of demonstrating the perversity that occurs as a part of God's wrath when individuals worship the creation rather than the creator. Paul alludes to the creation narrative throughout this section of Romans. I don't have time to show them all to you today, but he's reminding you of creation, even with the word creator and creation over and over again. And part of God's creation included forming humankind in his own image, male and female. He created them, commanding them to be fruitful and to multiply. Also in Genesis 2, 18 through 24, describes the creation of opposite sexes for one another and moralized. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The complementary nature of maleness and femaleness are giving nothing less in Genesis and in Romans a complete theological grounding as part of the creative activity of God. The act of becoming one flesh is a created goal of maleness and complementary femaleness. Being a fundamental part of God's design is depicted in the early chapters of Genesis. Sexual distinctions cannot and should not be ignored. Refusing to acknowledge such distinctions results in, acknowledging the, in uh, refusing to acknowledge the creator of those boundaries. The employment of same-gender sexual relations as an illustration was a powerful instrument used by Paul in the formulation of his argument. To Paul, at least, no other sin seemed to go directly against the Creator and His created order more than this one. The whole essence of the argument is that God is the Creator, and the Creator has made boundaries, and creation must stay within God's created boundaries. The Western culture, I'm afraid, has an agenda to ignore, mock creation boundaries. If we can erase all the boundaries, here's the agenda, then we've erased the boundary maker, and thus we become our own gods, idolatry, and every man can therefore do what is right in his own eyes. Make no mistake, the reason we want to get rid of the boundaries is so we can get rid of the boundary maker, and if we get rid of the boundary maker, then we become gods ourselves. Let me give you some more examples outside of homosexuality of, of this boundary, loss of boundaries. There's actually an ethicist at Princeton University by the name of Peter Singer. He actually argues for bestiality. He says, and I quote, sex with animals does not always involve cruelty. Princeton University professor. What Peter Singer 
argues as if we're going to knock down boundaries, we need to knock down all boundaries. And the last boundary standing is a boundary between humanity and the animal kingdom. At least he's consistent. If you're going to ignore all the boundaries that God has made, he says you need to ignore all the boundaries, including the boundary between humans and animals. In fact, he criticizes those who maintain that boundary as being a specious. You're guilty of speciesism if you say that humans should not have sex with animals. Princeton University. The whole movement is against boundaries. I can do anything I want to if there's no boundaries. I can ignore the boundary maker if there are no boundaries, and therefore I have become my own God. There's another display of boundary confusion in our culture. It's a movement to actually encourage even children to declare themselves to be a gender other than the sex to which they were so assigned at conception. There's especially a lot of pressure, in particular on little girls, to make themselves into little boys. If you look at the stats, it's much more little girls that we're encouraging to be little boys. I think it's a, a clear devaluation of womanhood. As a father of three daughters and two granddaughters, I don't want any girl being told she has to be a boy to have any value. It's not true. A lot of pressure on these children become transgender, one immediately becomes cool, popularity soars. Every institution today from elementary schools and bathrooms to Olympic competition committees is having to decide what they're going to do with boys who pretend to be girls and girls who pretend to be boys. According to CBS News, a preschool teacher read two children's books about transgenderism to her class. The kindergartners, one observer said, came home very confused about whether or not they could pick their own gender or whether or not they really were a boy or really were a girl. Do you know which girls declare themselves to be boys? Teenagers who belong to a peer group in which one friend has also come out as transgender. And in some groups, the majority of their friends have done so. The Wall Street Journal examining the trend says declaring oneself transgender in a lot of communities carried a lot of social benefits. In fact, the pressure to become transgender is so great, says the Wall Street Journal, that being trans is a gold star in the eyes of other teens. The choose your own gender myth is a lie. There are boundaries. You've heard of them, chromosomes X and Y which determine whether one is male or female. It is a very dangerous anti-scientific trend toward an outright denial of biological identification of gender. Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist at Penn State, and Emma Hilton, a de developmental biologist at the University of Manchester, says that biologists and medical professionals need to stand up for the empirical reality of biological sex to otherwise undermines public trust in science and is dangerously harmful to those who are most vulnerable. In fact, Dr. Paul R. McHugh, a former psychiatrist in chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital and current distinguished professor of psychiatry there said, transgenderism is a mental disorder that merits treatment and that sex change is biologically impossible, and that people who promote sexual reassignment surgery are collaborating and promoting a mental disorder. McHugh is the author of seven books and 125 peer-reviewed articles in prestigious medical journals. 
In fact, a new study has shown that the suicide rate among transgender people who undergo reassignment surgery is 20 times higher than the rate of suicide among non-transgender people. The doctor says that the idea of sex misalignment is simply mistaken. It does not correspond with the physical reality and it can lead to grim psychological outcomes. The assumption that one's gender is only in the mind regardless of the anatomical reality has led some transgender people to push for a social acceptance and affirmation of their own subjective personal truth. Put plainly, says the doctor, sex change is a biological impossibility. All you become is a feminized woman or a masculized, uh, feminized man or a masculized woman. The absolute obsession in our culture with insisting that what was created is irrelevant to the purpose, the life, and the hope of a human being is one of the most destructive messages that we could possibly allow to be spoken. Once the chromosomes have come to a conclusion, which is the case in 99.99% of all humanity, a gender is established scientifically from birth to death. You see what's happening here. Get rid of all the boundaries. Get rid of the boundary maker. And then you've become your own God. Some argue, secondly, that the Apostle Paul was speaking only against heterosexuals who engage in homosexual behavior rather than homosexuals who follow their inner orientation. In reality, however, such an anachronistic readings of the text should not be used by the church to simply make the text less offensive to modern ears. We cannot force categories of discussion from the 21st century onto a first century text. That's no good hermeneutic. Such readings which collapse the distance from ourselves in the ancient text by smuggling in modern categories and assumptions fail to recognize the potential conflicts among competing sources of authority. We must admit that Paul knew nothing of a natural homosexual orientation or monogamous homosexual relationship. We must avoid the great temptation to reread the text through modern lenses. Paul clearly uses homosexuality in his rhetorical flow in Romans as example of the creation itself is rebelling, rebelling against the boundaries of creation's order. The fallacy of the anachronistic approach is clear. Such an interpreter is arguing along these lines. If Paul knew then what I know now, then Paul would agree with me. You see that? What they're saying is if Paul knew then what I know now, Paul would agree with me. That's willy-nilly logic. You could reformulate many of Paul's positions to agree with our modern sensibilities. For example, to be consistent in his treatment of other issues, we would have to likewise assert that if Paul had known that alcoholic behavior was based upon a biological factor, then Paul would not have condemned all drunkenness like he does in Romans and 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and 1 Thessalonians. Paul would have to go back and say it is only drunkenness by those who have no genetic factor in their formulation of alcoholism. You see how silly the arguments become. The truth is, we can never predict how the apostle would have assimilated any modern information in his ethical matrix. Rather than rereading the apostle, it's best to follow his overall rhetorical flow in Romans to see how clearly he condemned all same-gender sexuality, including both homosexuality and lesbian behavior. My own ethical matrix will not allow me to contradict Paul, nor perform hermeneutical gymnastics 
in order to make the apostle agree with modern assumptions. A third argument I hear set forth for the acceptance of same-gender sexuality is that sexual orientation is innate and unchangeable. That is, beyond one's own choosing. Therefore, it must be accepted. Now, think about that for a moment. It seems to me to be faulty logic to assume that any behavior that has a biological basis must be approved and blessed by the church. I wonder if those who make such an argument are willing to travel fully down the road upon which they've begun. I actually agree that there is a biological, and I would add psychological predisposition in many cases in regard to sexual orientation. Scientists themselves, however, are not professing a biological determinism. Even studies which make the most radical claims for a biological basis for sexual orientation indicate the development of a sexual orientation is a very complex thing. No one claims that the biological factors are so strong that individuals are simply responding helplessly like puppets on the end of biological strings to physiological impulses that are absolutely beyond their control. Dean Hammer, a pioneer in sexual orientation research and a homosexual himself says, and I quote, we have never thought that finding a genetic link makes sexual orientation a simple genetic trait like eye color. It's way more complex than that. But not all biologically based desires must be approved by God in the community of faith. Part of what humanity's fall means that we all are in a predicament. We're all enslaved to sin. I am and you are and they are. We're all predisposed to turn away from God and his boundaries. As scientific research moves forward, they're going to, you're going to see a biological basis for a lot of behavior. Already they're looking at alcoholism, gambling, and yes, racial hatred. Would we therefore contend that if racial hatred has a biological basis, the behavior of an anti-Semite or a skinhead would be blessed and accepted by the church? I hope not. I think not. The scientists of the next generation link the sexual preferences of a pedophile to a physiological source. Are we therefore going to bless adults engaging with children in sexual behavior? The church must never fall for the faulty logic that a biological basis for any temptation makes it acceptable to engage the behavior that has been determined by the apostles to be hurtful to the body of Christ. As a result of the fall of Adam, all humanity is biologically predisposed towards sin. I am and you are. Biologically and psychologically, we find ourselves carrying the temp temptation to give in to the impulses of our flesh. We must make a clear distinction between sexual orientation, which is beyond one's choice, and sexual behavior, which is always an act of the volition. No serious ethicist finds fault in same-gender orientation itself. The sin resides in acting upon the orientation. Some assume it's unrealistic for the church to expect celibacy from those with the same-gender orientation. On the contrary, we must realize that sexual fulfillment itself has never been a right. In reality, the church's call for celibacy is the same for all who cannot express their sexuality within the boundaries of heterosexual marriage. The church denies sexual fulfillment to many single and divorced members of the congregation who, despite their best efforts, have been unable to find an appropriate spouse for marriage. Following the New Testament pattern, in fact, the church recognizes singleness and the accompanying celibacy as a faithful, perhaps, Paul would say, even preferred path of discipleship. Here's a fourth argument I hear, and that is that because many churches and pastors have been 
angry or hurtful to those of the same gender sexual orientation, we must now change our position and so show love and kindness. While I regret any mistreatment of any human being by the church, the censorious and abusive spirit of others does not place an obligation upon us to condone sinful behavior. We must find a new sense of compassion and understanding for those with same gender sexuality. Even in our compassion and acknowledgement of all the complexities surrounding same gender sexual orientation, however, we must never approve of homosexuals acting upon their orientation as long as we give Scripture the primacy and the formation of our ethical responses. Another argument I often hear is that no sex act itself has morality inherent to itself. The argument says that God is not interested in sexual acts, but rather in the hearts of the actors. Homosexual sex, therefore, could argue between two men who are, have loving hearts and it's justifiable sex. It's transferring the definition of sin away from the action to the heart of the actor. It may seem even a moment to embrace Romans 5 through 7 where Jesus says, it's not only the murderer with the hand, but also the angry heart that's a sin. I'm afraid this argument reverses the broadened equation of Jesus by narrowing the scope of condemnation to apply to heart issues only. Jesus never said that murder was okay and only anger was a sin. You see, it is both the act of the hand as well as the attitude of the heart. Like Gnostics of antiquity, such arguments seem to have diminished the body to simply focus on the spirit. But our Jesus had a bodily resurrection what we do with our bodies is awfully, awfully important. Another argument I hear, if I don't make it off the TV, I got a few more minutes, you can get this online, it'll be there for you. Is the same gender sexuality must follow the trend of culture or we're gonna be left in the dark ages. Put another way, the acceptance of same gender sexuality by the Western culture obligates the church to follow suit. I fear that such a position reverses the biblical paradigm. It is the people of God who are to be prophetic and a voice of guidance to a lost world. Rather than adjusting our course to accommodate the ever-changing and often confused moral compass of the world, the people of God are to live by the revealed word of thus saith the Lord. For example, the people of God, the ancient Israelites, were never called to live by the moral matrix of their pagan neighbors. And the New Testament, Christians are said to be salt and light in a culture that was full of homosexuality and every other sin that we know, lust and greed as well. The final, the sixth, uh, seventh argument, final argument I hear in regard to same gender sexuality is that the church at one time shamefully discriminated against minorities, either ethnic minorities or women. But I think it's a great fallacy to equate being a woman or being part of an ethnic minority with being a homosexual. In fact, I find minority groups and women themselves are often bothered by this fallacious comparison. There is nothing sinful about being a woman. There is nothing sinful about being a member of an ethnic minority group. Jesus himself was a member of an ethno ethnic minority group. And being a woman is representative of God's creative order of maleness and femaleness, Genesis 1:27. While engaging in homosexual activity is Paul's very paradigm of the rejection of both the creator and his orderly creation. In the end, we do no one a favor by redefining destructive sin as acceptable. 
One of my preacher friends has long said if he were to pl- replace the label on a bottle of strychnine and write on it the essence of peppermint, it wouldn't make it any less deadly to, to partake in. I want to bring you another perspective, and you, you may not be aware of this one. What we're going through is a Western issue. It's not a worldwide issue. In fact, just last year in 2019, on a global scale, the Methodists gathered together to decide whether they would bless same-gender sexuality. The American progressives thought they had the vote to get homosexuality blessed by the Methodist church. There was an African theologian, Dr. Jerry P. Kula, who stood up and made a speech, and I quote, Please hear me, said the African theologian. When I say as graciously as I can, we Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive United States bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. In fact, he went on to say the American church thought they could be bought. The Africans could be bought by the financial power of the American Methodist church. And he says... Anyone who's so naive to think we can be bought or condescending as to think we would sell our birthright in Jesus Christ for American dollars simply do not know us. We will remain steadfast on the sexual issue, and someday we will wear the victor's crown of glory with our King Jesus come and walk with us. In fact, when we have discussions with Africans and Asians and you tell them that the American church is thinking about changing course on this topic that is even on the table for discussion, they are flabbergasted. The American Christianity, Western Christianity, European Christianity had fallen so far to a boundary-free, God-free existence. In fact, congregation, the truth of the matter is Christianity is moving away from the West. It's moving to Africa and Asia. And in fact, they're already sending missionaries to America more than we're sending there now. And God knows we need them to come. And these folks are not afraid to stand up to heresy. They have faced civil wars and persecutions and Ebola and martyrdom. And they are not afraid of speaking their peace, as was the good African theologian at the Methodist Conference. When we as Americans or Westerners, try to push our, quote, enlightened version of Christianity down the throats of the rest of the world of Christendom, we'd better beware. That's an awfully arrogant position to take that we know best. We hope the Africans and Asians will come along and get with it when it comes to being more accepting. The most loving position the 21st century church can take It's to continue to identify with the Apostle Paul and the historic church. The same gender, sexual, I'm not saying orientation, but behavior is sinful. At the same time, the church must reach out to all who struggle with same gender orientation. Just as we reach out to all of us who struggle, I have my list of predispositions. I know you have yours too. Whether it's greed or heterosexual lust or alcoholism or any other temptation known to fallen humanity. To be clear, Paul is saying in Romans 1, there is a boundary maker and boundaries cannot be broken for he is the creator and we are nothing but mere creation. Let us pray.
God, I don't hold myself as better than anyone. I'm fallen and predisposed to just in another area. Every one of us wrestles with the, the sin of Adam. We all are broken. We all need the redemption of grace and the love of the church. But none of us needs the church to bless our sin, no matter what that sin is. For to do so is to deny the creator and the boundaries he's made. Maybe there are some here this morning who struggle with any issue in regard to sin. Maybe it's our Sunday to see whatever our sin might be that we all have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.